the tribe uh, to the to Judah. Israel had already been conquered about a hundred years prior uh, by the Assyrian people, and uh, basically Judah is next in line for the very same thing. Uh, they had a covenant with God, Yah- uh, Yahweh. They broke that covenant, and uh, Jeremiah is is preaching, coming to be their last ditch effort to get back on track. Uh, very much reminds me of Jesus when he looked over Jerusalem that time. He, he talked about how, how long he would have gathered together uh, the, the Jews as a hen would gather her chicks. And uh, the offer of the kingdom, I believe, was a legitimate offer, uh, but it was rejected. In fact, he said, how long would I have gathered you together as a hen would gather her chicks, but ye would not. Uh, they rejected him. So a lot of chapter 8 now follows this idea. Uh, there's no new theme here. But Jeremiah is preaching to them and trying to get them. He's, he's spiritually trying to shake them of their senses so they would realize that what is happening to them is because of they have, they have walked away from the Lord. But they don't see it. And we should be reminded today uh, that it is very easy, easy to be spiritually blind to your own sins and your own failures. And uh, no matter what Jeremiah would do, of course we, we realize that the Jews, Judah, was, a, was apostate. And we're going to see that today. So we're going to look at three things. We're going to break this down into three sections. First of all, Jeremiah chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. Uh, and after that, we're going to go to uh, verses 4 through 13. And then we're going to do verses 14 uh, through verse 22. Maybe even touch on verse 1 of chapter 9. Depends on how we get in this ne- next half hour. But there is a saying that maybe you've used before. And it is, if it's not broke, don't fix it. Right? You know, it's, it's a pretty common saying that you know, if, if something uh, isn't broke, then you don't fix it. Well, what happens if you have something that is broke, but people don't realize it? And so what we're going to talk about tonight is, if it's broke, don't fix it. You know, because that's, that's basically what the Jews, you know, Jeremiah is trying to get them to realize, hey, you are the reason that of what's happening to you. You need to wake up. Your relationship with Yahweh is everything. And if you don't get things right, and their attitude is, it's not broke, but it was broke, and they weren't going to fix it. So look at, let's look at verses 1 through 3. It says, at, the, at that time, saith the Lord, they should know that, remember, he's been, been uh, prophesying of a foe coming from the north. He doesn't identify them, hasn't identified them yet. He will, and we will eventually find out they did come. And it was, of course, King Nebuchadnezzar from Babylon. Uh, But right now he's just talking about these people. And he says, At that time, saith the Lord, they shall bring out the bones of the kings of Judah and the bones of his princes and the bones of the priests and the bones of the prophets and the bones of the inhabitants of Jerusalem out of their graves. And they shall spread them before the sun and the moon and all the the hosts of heaven whom they have loved and whom they have served and after whom they have walked and whom they have sought and whom they have worshipped. They shall not be gathered nor be buried. They shall be for dung upon the face of the earth. 
in Judah's apostasy, one of the many things, as we know we've, we've beat the drum already, that they had uh, embraced, first of all, they went in to the land of Cana and they were enticed by their false gods. Balaam, Moloch, Ashtaroth. And, um, and they began to worship those false gods. And, and the Lord even told them ahead of time, don't do this. Well, apparently, uh, one of the, the gods of, um, of these, these pagans uh, were uh, what we, we call astral deities. They worshiped the stars. The hosts of heaven is how it's worded. And apparently Israel did that. And we, uh, we'll, we'll see some verses in a minute. But um, notice what's happening here. Because this is a play on that. Uh, not just a play. This is a, a prophecy. At that time, the enemy is going to... Basically, they're going to take all your, your dead that were interred from your kings all the way down to the, the regular folks. And they're going to they're open their graves and just lay out their bones under the stars. Uh, they shall spread them, verse 2, before the sun and the moon and all the hosts of heaven. And he's talking about this, uh, the worshiping the astral deities, this, the stars, whom they have loved. They worship the stars. Whom they have served. They thought they served the stars. And after whom they have walked and whom they have sought and whom they have worshiped. Now what an interesting thing. Listen to some of these verses where we see that this was actually a practice. And you don't need to turn here, but 2 Kings chapter 21 and verse 3 says this. For he built up again the high places which Hezekiah his father had destroyed. And he reared up altars for Baal and made a grove as did Ahab king of Israel and worshipped all the host of heaven and served them. So this was one of the failures of the, the people of Israel and Judah now is that they, they worshipped, they, the they believed in astral deities. 2 Kings 23, that was chapter 21. 2 Kings 23 and verse 4. And the king commanded Hilkiah, the high priest, and the priests of the second order, and the keepers of the door, to bring forth out of the temple of the Lord all the vessels that were made for Baal, and for the grove, and for all the host of heaven. And he burned them without Jerusalem in the fields of Kidron, and carried the ashes of them unto Bethel. So how, how interesting is it that now this prophecy is when, when Nebuchadnezzar comes in, when the Babylonians come in, they're not just going to conquer you, but to add insult to injury, they're going to unearth your, your forefathers and, and take the bones out of the graves and just scatter them before the gods that you worshipped. You know, the, the sun, the stars, and it's, almost, it's, it's as if he's saying, they're not going to do anything. You know, they're, they're, you're gonna, all these bones are going to be spread out to these people you worship, these false gods, and they're just going to look down indifferently because they don't exist. What a sad thing. What a sad thing. But do you get the heart of Yahweh? It, this reminds me very much, and this is found throughout Scripture in the Old Testament, of the showdown, quote-unquote showdown, which it really wasn't, on Mount Carmel, in 1 Kings chapter 18, verses 20 through 40. You remember that Elijah challenged the 450 prophets of Baal uh, to a contest. And they were each going to build an altar and put a sacrifice on it. And then they were going to call their God. 
Or in the case of the 450 prophets of Baal, you know, they were going to call upon their gods and see which God answered. <laughs> what a demonstration. I would have I would love I want to see that video. I want to see that documentary. I wish they had cell phones then. Don't you? Would it have been phenomenal to see just to see you know Elijah there and and just you think about what happened. The the false prophets built their altar. They said, "Okay, we'll do it." As if they thought their God could answer. They put the sacrifice there and then they called to their God for an hour and two hours and three hours and nothing happened and they got more and more frantic. What a demonstration. And then it came time for for Yahweh, for Elijah. And so he commanded them to, to build the altar and put the sacrifice on there and then he did something for dramatic effect. He said, fill those barrels and pour water on it. Now, it wouldn't have made a difference for the prophets of Baal because their God didn't even respond, whether it had water or not. And then after they did it, he told them, do it again. And he made sure that that sacrifice was drenched in water. You know, just maybe to make it more dramatic on how powerful God is. And then for the next three hours, no, in the next moment, he prayed to the God of heaven and fire came down from heaven and destroyed the water, the sacrifice. Just What a demonstration that must have been. Why did God do that? I'm reminded in Exodus chapter 20 and Deuteronomy chapter 8, or excuse me, Deuteronomy chapter 5. You remember the third commandment? Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, that is in earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. Then he says, Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. God is a jealous God who takes it personal when the worship that is deserved to him and him alone goes to another. Especially when it's a false god like Baal or the hosts of heaven that are all, you know, the hosts of heaven, the stars are his creation. He's the one that created them. But how personal God takes it. And uh, this whole idea of, you know, unearthing and spreading the bones under the stars of heaven, it's as if he's challenging Israel, you know, especially imagine the people who did not die during that, when it would happen. You know, Nebuchadnezzar comes in, he begins to conquer Jerusalem and Israel, and, and they take all the bones out, and they do that. And imagine now, if you get the, you're, you're one of the surviving people of Judah, Judah, you're going to be going into captivity, and you see all this happening. And you get the point very clearly that your gods, small g, that didn't do anything, the gods, you know, the bones are sitting there under the stars, and there's nothing from your astral deities to help you. It, it, is, a, it is a pathetic picture, but look what happens in verse 3. And death shall be chosen rather than life 
by all the residents of them that remain of this evil family, which remain in all the places whither I have driven them, saith the Lord of hopes. In other words, they will end up wishing that they hadn't escaped. What was ahead for them? First of all, this great humiliation. And, and that's what it was. It was a humiliation. You know, they had been warned for so long. God was so offended that they forsook Him for false gods. And now, He was going to make sure in dramatic fashion that they were humbled and they came to realize the complete ridiculousness of the gods that they worshipped. It would be a great humbling. So much so that they would wish that they had died. There is an idiom you may have heard of called eating crow. Have you ever heard of that? There's there's like a dozen different supposed origins. But when somebody is said to eat crow, it means that they have to admit in front of other people that they were wrong. Um, Again, there's various things uh, uh, to that. But basically, uh, it's when somebody adamantly denies something or professes something uh, and goes all out putting themselves and attaching themselves to a particular idea or theory, and then they are proven wrong. And that's when you say, wow, you've, you had to eat crow. Now, some people say the fact that crows eat, you know, they're, they're uh, carrion, they eat dead flesh, and apparently they don't taste very good. I've never eaten any crow. Uh, but the idea is clearly that you, you have been humiliated. And... Uh, that's hap- that happens a lot historically uh, because God says, I resist the proud and I give grace to the humble. I, rem- I think it biblically of King Nebuchadnezzar, the very, the very servant that God would use to humble Judah would himself be humbled. You remember that scenario when he walks out in his kingdom and he gets all proud, uh, you know, the hanging gardens of Babylon and so many things. And he said, isn't this the great... Look what I have done. And immediately God humbles him. uh, And he goes through a period of being very, eating crow, you know, theoretically, very humbled. I think of Adolf Hitler. You know, what an evil man. And what an ambitious man that ended up being such a coward and taking his own life uh, so that he would not, you know, his body would not be humiliated when when he was finally captured. But uh, clearly... God resists the proud. And Judah was at a point where they were so stubborn and they were so proud. You know, during our our communion time, I I spoke about, um, you know, other people sharing. uh, You know, kids and having a wife can be a, it is a great blessing, but it is also a humble pie. You know, there's so many times when you know, my I've shared this before. My wife and I are married for nine years, and so we had our little disputes as far as what you know I thought she did wrong, what she thought I did wrong, and and then all of a sudden, all of a sudden, we have four kids come along that get to weigh in on these little things. And there were several things my wife pointed out that I was convinced I was right, and my kids said, "No, Dad, you do that." You know how humbling that is. I mean, you talk about eating crow. It's like, and one example, perfect example. Uh, we recently spent some time with, with Dave Osenbach, my son Benjamin and I. And um, he was sharing with us something he did with his kids. 
And it was, it was kind of a cute thing. It was driving, and it was to teach them how to stop at a, at a stop sign. You know, he said, um, he said, when you go to a stop sign, this is what he taught his kids, and I'm doing it now, by the way. Uh, he taught his kids that when you get to a stop sign, say the word, say the number one out loud. He said, that's stupid, you know. But it helps you to get to that point where you stop. And I remember as we're talking, Benjamin's in the back of the car, and I'm talking to David, and I'm like, well, I stop, I stop at, at stop signs, you know. And if my son wasn't there, Dave and I would have been going on our merry way, and I would have been in the right and, and no harm, no foul. But all of a sudden, my son says, Oh, no, Dad, you do that. You know? I, oh, no, I really do? And, and then he, he brought out some evidence, and of course he was right. And, uh, and so I had to say, all right, got to work on this. So now, every time, not every time, you know, but most, I, I'm really working on it. I've done it most, most stop signs today where I'll get to the stop sign, and I'll stop, and I'll say out loud, one. And it really does. It works. It works. It makes you stop. You know, it makes you, it makes you conscious of it. Who would have thought? But, you know, maybe, yeah, obviously those are little things. And hopefully if you found out that I don't come to a complete stop at every stop sign, that you would not call for my resignation. But, but who knows, you know? It, little things can be important sometimes. But the key is, are we teachable? Are we at a point where we can be corrected and say, Okay, I do that. I love this story. You know, I love reading about humble servants of God and, and servants that God used mightily. One of my favorites since early time in Bible school uh, was D.L. Moody. D.L. Moody was a great preacher. Uh, he was not very good in, in the English language. Uh, he was a plain talker, but God used him mightily. He was at the time in, in the... Uh, Late 1800s, he was truly the most famous evangelist in the world. People came from all around the world to attend his Bible conferences in Northfield, Massachusetts. And one year, a large group of pastors from Europe were among the attendees. They were given rooms in the dormitory uh, of the Bible school. And uh, as the custom was in Europe, the men put their shoes outside the door of their rooms expecting them to be cleaned and polished by servants during the night. You know, talk about one culture conflicting with another culture. And uh, apparently one night, uh, over the course, they didn't have any servants in the dorms. And uh, one night as Moody was walking through the halls, praying for his guests, he saw the shoes and he realized what happened. And he mentioned to a bunch of the students about the need. <laughs> and none of the students seemed interested in helping him out. So without a word, this, this great man, the man that people came from all over the world to see, went around collecting the shoes, went back, and he began to polish them. And didn't, he did not announce it. Somebody hit, one of his friends walked in on him when he was doing it, and when he saw what Moody was doing, he jumped in and helped him. And if it weren't for that, no, this story would never be made public. Uh, so they cleaned them all and put them back, and, and Moody never said a word. And it was not, you know, that other guy didn't say, say it either for years, maybe after Moody died. But, you know, that is such a sign of a humble person. And, you know, that's what God wants us to be. God wants us to be humble. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Now let's pick up in verse 4, the consequences of our actions. 
Verse 4, Moreover thou shalt say unto them, Thus saith the Lord, Shall they fall and not arise? Shall he turn away and not return? Why then is this people of Jerusalem slidden back by a perpetual backsliding? They hold fast deceit. They refuse to turn. I hearkened and heard, but they spake not aright. No man repented him of his wickedness, saying, What have I done? Remember, the, there's key words in the book of Jeremiah, and the word repent or return is used over and over again. Again, verse 6, I hearkened and heard, but they spake not aright. No man repented him of his wickedness, saying, What have I done? Everyone turned to his course as the horse rusheth into the battle. Yea, the stork in the heaven knoweth her appointed times, and the turtle and the crane and the swallow observe the time of, for their coming. But my people know not the judgment of the Lord. In other words, even the wildlife uh, has appointed times. Like, for example, for migration, you know, they, they, are, they know they've been created for something and they'll migrate you know, every year according to the way they were designed. And yet God, who's written His law in man's heart, and has given his law to the people of Israel. Uh, they, would, they, were, they did not get it. And they totally ignored God's promptings. Verse 8. How do you say we are wise and the law of the Lord is with us? Though certainly in vain made he it the pen of the scribes is vain. Understand at this point in time. They had some of the written law. And this was when scribes were an early thing. But God was also speaking verbally through the prophet Jeremiah and other prophets. But there was such an arrogance that while they acknowledged, and they would even say, hey, we have your word. It might even be in here. The, verse 9, the wise men are ashamed, they are dismayed and taken. Lo, they have rejected the word of the Lord and what wisdom is in them. Uh, so what was happening was, they said, hey, we already have the written word. We know what it says, and we're okay with that. And so they're getting this new revelation from Jeremiah, from God, that they are not right, but they're so proud and they're so arrogant that they're not seeing it. You know, they're, they're looking back at the Scriptures, saying, oh, you know, it, it pats us on the back. And God's prophet giving them new revelation is saying, you are not right. And so they considered themselves wise, but they were not. And so God says to them in verse 10, Therefore will I give their wives unto others, and their fields to them that shall inherit them. For every one from the least even unto the greatest is given to covetousness. From the prophet even unto the priest, every one dealeth falsely. For they have, they have healed the hurt of the daughter of my people slightly, saying, Peace, peace, when there is no peace. We've looked at this already, that the false prophets... We're saying, hey, there's peace. Everything's fine. God's not upset with you. And there was no peace. Were they ashamed, verse 12, when they had committed abomination? Nay, they were not at all ashamed. Neither could they blush. Therefore shall they fall among them that fall. In the time of their visitation they shall be cast down, saith the Lord. I will surely consume them, saith the Lord. There shall be no grapes on the vine, nor figs on the fig trees, and the leaf shall fade, and the things that I have given them shall pass away from them. These folks were so self-assured that it seems that they were beyond repentance. And indeed, God would say in, in the next few verses and through the whole book is that you've had your chance. 
you've not repented and I am going to judge you. And so I want to contrast this to we've looked at the life of Job often. Remember Job's friends? You know, Job's friends in some ways were saying the same thing that Jeremiah was saying. Hey, you need to get right with the Lord. The only problem was Jeremiah or Job was right with the Lord. You know, there was there was he was an upright man that feared God and eschewed evil. There was no man like Job. And they were claiming that he must have done something wrong, that he was reaping what he was sowing, but he was not. But in this case, it's so different. Because their consequences, what they were experiencing, was very much their own fault. And they couldn't even see it. I remember when I attended Bible college, uh, before I went to the Bible Institute where I graduated, I went to a, a Bible college in Clark Summit, which is now a different name, um, same school. But I remember there was an upperclassman that I admired. I thought he was a very godly man. And we hung out together. And uh, I remember at, at chapel, it seemed that, you know, if, if I was really blessed by a message from one of the people at chapel, we'd go off and talk about it. it seemed, and I didn't catch on this right away, but he would always dismiss whatever the guy was bringing out. He would always dismiss it and say, oh, that guy took it out of context. And, you know, he, he always had to be superior to the guy that was bringing a message that was blessing me. And, you know, so he always, I just remember him coming across as, oh, no, that guy took things out of context. And it was like he was trying to take my blessing from me, you know. Well, I remember finding out years after that, that that semester, I was only there for one year, that when, he, when that was happening, this guy was going out to the bars and drinking it up and just not living the Christian life. And, and I thought, no wonder, you know, no wonder. When you and I are not right with God, we're not going to catch those subtle messages when He brings reproof in our life. And how important it is for us to be sensitive to that. Last, pa- last part, let's go to verse 14. And I titled this part, Why the pow- Power of Positive Thinking is Foolish When We're Not Right with God. That's something that I don't think Joel Osteen in his preaching has brought out. You know, I mean, and to him, the tell-all is, uh, this was true with Robert Schuller and all the people that are of that ilk, is, you know, just think positive thoughts and say good things and don't say anything negative. Uh, Jeremiah was not that man. That, that would have described all those false prophets that said, peace, peace, everything's good, just smile. Look at verse 14. Why do we sit still? Assemble ourselves. Let us enter into the defense cities and let us be silent there. For the Lord our God hath put us to silence and given us water of gall to drink because we have sinned against the Lord. Now this is, from this point, I love this. Jeremiah is doing something that Nehemiah did and that many servants of God have done. You know, when Nehemiah was doing, when he was involved, this would actually be later uh, than this time, when he was leading the return and all, Nehemiah identified himself with the people. And, And he was the leader. He could have very easily said, you people are blowing it. You have forsaken God. You have done this. You've gotten yourself into a sticky wicket. But he didn't. He identified with them. He, 
he would say in his prayer, we have forsaken you. And, and Jeremiah does the same thing. Now he's the one that's preaching to them to try to get their attention. But notice how he includes himself here. Why do we sit still? Assemble yourselves and let us enter into the defense cities and let us be silent there. For the Lord our God hath put us to silence, given us water of gall to drink because we've sinned against the Lord. We look for peace, but no good came. And for a time of health and behold trouble. The snorting of, this, of his horses was heard from Dan. This is the enemy. The whole land trembled at the sound of the neighing of his strong ones. And they are come and have devoured the land and all that is in it, the city and those that dwell therein. So very well. Now remember that Jeremiah is not chronological. Uh, there's a lot of poetry. A lot of this was assembled after the time. And so, you know, this is clearly referring to a time when the enemy was there. Verse 17. For behold, I will send serpents, cockatrices among you, which will not be charmed, and they shall bite you, saith the Lord. When I would comfort myself against sorrow, my heart is faint in me. Behold the voice of the cry of the daughter of my people because of them that dwell in a far country. Is not the Lord in Zion? Is not her king in her? Why have they provoked me to anger with their graven images and with strange vanities? The harvest is past, the summer is ended, and we are not saved. For the hurt of the daughter of my people am I hurt. I am black. Astonishment hath taken hold of me. Is there no balm in Gilead? That was a place where there was uh, ointments and, and soothing uh, things that they could give. Is there no physician there? Why then is not the health of the daughter of my people recovered? And then look at chapter 9 and verse 1. It, it kind of summarizes. Oh, that my head were waters, Jeremiah says, and mine eyes a fountain of tears that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. What an amazing thing. I want to, as I wrap this up, I want to remind you that the big message here that, that Israel needed to get was that God is not the problem. You are. I, I'm reminded of when, um, when Samuel uh, felt really rejected because his ministry was rejected. And he was, I guess, ready to quit. And God had to tell Samuel, he said, they've not rejected you, but they've rejected me. Because the message that Jeremiah, that um, Samuel was delivering to them uh, about the king, they, they didn't want it. And so Samuel took that personal. And so many other ants, uh, examples. Um, in fact, I'll read a, a verse ahead. Jeremiah chapter 5, verse 19. It says, and it shall come to pass when they shall say, Wherefore doeth the Lord our God all these things unto us? Then, thou sh then shalt thou answer them, Like as ye have forsaken me and served strange gods in your land, so shall ye serve strangers in a land that is not your own. It's God saying, you know what? I'm not the problem, you are. Rem if, again, remember when, um, when Ahab was looking for Elijah because there had been famine in the land for three years? And finally, he, he comes upon Elijah and he says, Art, you, art thou he that, here's the guy that troubles Israel. It's amazing how when things are going wrong, we want to blame someone, but too often we don't have the ability to look in the mirror at ourselves. And of course, Elijah said, I've not troubled Israel, but you have. And, and we need to remember that because that's exactly what was going on here. I want to close with a story I was sharing, I think with my wife recently, but I dug it up again because it was such a blessing the first time I heard it. You know, there are certain issues in church history that have been um, 
hotly contested and debated and issues where genuine born-again believers disagree. And probably the biggest one is the issue of the free will of man versus the sovereignty of God. You know, predestination, free will. And uh, we go back into the um, 18th century, 1700s, and there was a two great evangelists. One was George Whitfield, and one was John Wesley. And they were contemporaries, and they were friends. And they hotly disagreed about this issue. Uh, Whitfield was a Calvinist. He emphasized predestination. Uh, John Wesley was an Arminian. He emphasized free will. Hence the difference between Presbyterians and Methodists, even to this day. Uh, but they had some... In fact, it came to a, a climax in 1741 where it became, it became a big divisive issue. But George Whitfield and John Wesley worked very hard to keep their differences private. And uh, it, it, by the way, it was called the, great, the Free Grace Controversy. Both men led thousands of people to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And at one point, um, someone asked George Whitfield before they both died. And George Whitfield died in 1770. John Wesley died in 1791. But uh, someone asked George Whitfield because they knew they disagreed and they assumed that those theological differences would put them at odds with one another. And so somebody approached um, George Whitfield and, and, and asked, hey, do you, do, you think we'll, do you think you'll see John Wesley in heaven? I mean, that's how tense it got. And, John, and uh, George Whitfield replied, I fear I will not see him. It's like, oh boy, you really have taken this thing the whole way. You know, you really think he's not going to be in heaven. But he, he went on. He says, no, I don't think I will. Because he will be so near the eternal throne and we will be at such a distance that we shall hardly get sight of him. I love that. What a humble t testimony. Here's two guys that disagreed vehemently on certain theological things, both born-again believers, and they had that, that sweet spirit. They were humble. And that was one thing that Judah did not have. So that when the prophet of God could come to them and weep over them, they couldn't get it. May we not be that proud. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Humble us, Father. Search us. See if there be, and yes, there will be some wicked way in us. There will be failures, Father. There will be um, things that we uh, miss the mark on. But Lord, thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your grace. Help us be willing to eat crow, to humble ourselves and admit when we're wrong. Help us not to be so proud that we, um, that we will not budge, that we become like Judah, unable to see our own sin and thereby bring judgment on ourselves. So Lord, I pray for your mercy on America. I pray for your mercy on the church in America. And I ask your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's take our